fasten your seatbelt. I am taking you for the ride of your life. I'm going to show you what this car can really do. Are you ready? I am ready. Hang on. Okay. Here we go. Hold on to your butts. Go get him, kid. It might be a tumor. It's not a tumor. Not a tumor at all. If you're going to ask me, so you can go ahead and ask me what you're going to ask me. And my natural response could be to get offended. Hey, want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. All right, all right, all right. You're listening to the 30-something movie podcast. One movie each week. 30 years in the making. Well, it's the 30-something movie podcast, and we might have some hits for the 70s for you tonight, but most likely we're just going to talk about the movie Reservoir Dogs. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit about Quentin Tarantino, but... We're just going to continue all night long with K. Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s, if that's okay with you guys. It is the 30-something movie podcast. I'm a slightly more lively than the K. Billy DJ in this movie. I am your host, John Reed. I have with me three illustrious gentlemen. They are Mr. Pink, Mr. White, and Mr. Orange. I will let you all decide what colors you are. I don't want to be Mr. I don't want to be Mr. Pink. I want to be Mr. Purple. That's it. I'll be Mr. Purple. Mr. Purple's a guy on another podcast. That's Elmer. <laughs> I'm currently running multiple podcasts here. Mr. Purple's a guy on another show. I'm going to go with the one who survived. Wait. Well, wait a second. <laughs> no. No picking your own names because everyone I'm wants to be Mr. Black. I want to be wait, Mr. Black. Wait a second. Wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting this thing together. Don't I get to be Mr. Black? Anyway, how are you guys doing? Yeah, good, doing good. Good, we're good. Quite well yourself. I'm doing all right. Well, we get to talk Quentin Tarantino movie, so I'm doing pretty good. I say you can't really go wrong there, can you? Mm-hmm. No, sir. So our movie this time around is Reservoir Dogs. Real quick spoiler alert: we are we're probably going to talk quite a few Quentin Tarantino movies, so just be aware of that. If you have not watched some of them, you might want to pause. I mean, we're probably not going to go in depth on other movies too much, but I'm sure we'll we'll mention certain things and may mention some plot points of other films and whatnot. In our conversation, so just be warned. As he is slightly self-referential, so will we be. That is also true. <laughs> that is true. What are they, psychos? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love it. No. Are they psychos? <laughs> no. Do they look like psychos? Do they look like psychos? Psychos do not <laughs> burst. In- <laughs> when sunlight hits them, I don't crazy. give a <laughs> how crazy they are. That's the best part. <laughs> That is and still, I still, and I, I, I do that all the time when it's like, and then they did this, and then they, it, it mm-hmm. doesn't matter what you're talking about. Were they psychos? Uh, were, they, were they psychos? <laughs> oh, uh, man. That is still one of my favorite movie quotes of all time. Oh, it's, it's just I, outstanding. I keep that whatever, whatever episode it was when we were doing that all night long, yeah. I had to go watch it again after that. Oh, it yeah. had been years. Yeah. I think I've, I, since whatever episode that was, I think I've now watched no. From Dust Till Dawn at least two or three times since then. Oh, yeah. No. Visit our website. There are no psychos on our website, a30podcast.com, where you can leave. That is, 
That is possibly false advertising, I'm just saying. Well, all right, maybe. There are vampires on our website. But no psychos. No psychos. No psychos. Okay. Just just vampires. I feel like it was the the trailer for, uh, was it Anchorman 2? One of the trailers. It just had uh, Steve Carell going, in this movie, we all become witches. And that was like part of the trailer. That's all he says. And they're like, no, Rick, I don't think that's true. On our website, we have vampires. On our website, you can rate the show, leave a voicemail, become a co-executive producer, not a vampire, via Patreon or a psycho. And if you become a co-executive producer via Patreon, you get access to all kinds of other bonus content and other fun things. So head on over there, check it out. Any level of support on there gets you that bonus access to extra episodes. We've got about three episodes, two mini ones, and a full-length one coming out each month. So head on over that direction. Do we got anything else before we want to just jump right into the movie? I think we're going to have quite a bit to talk about, so I'm, I'm thinking we jump right into the movie. Mm-hmm. Unless you guys want to go to a diner, get some breakfast, get some coffee, talk about Madonna, a little tipping. Dennis has a story about watching this movie. <laughs> Does he really? All right. Well, let with me, Madonna? Oh. Did you watch no. it with Madonna? No. Dennis, do you know what I'm talking about, or do I need to give you the setup? Wait, wait, I know I have a story, but I, don't, I mean, I have a lot of stories. Which I don't know which. Well, one. you just decided to watch this with Autumn, and you asked John. John, is there anything? Oh in there yeah, that... yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. And I can't remember whether it got the message got clipped off or no. It's not bad as long as you don't whatever the heck it was. <laughs> but that scene yeah. came on, and you had forgotten about it. Yeah, the opening scene. I forgot how graphic it got. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I remember then, the Madonna piece, but I didn't remember like, I, I, like I forgot the what they actually mentioned about, <laughs> and yeah. how it. Yeah, I wasn't fully it, prepared. I, as I remembered, it was a shorter scene in in the past. Yeah, and I was like, "Is this the director's cut? What is this?" You know. So yeah, there was some right. Line, somehow, but what you, in the Sam Hill? <laughs> but you were watching it. You were watching it with Autumn. With Autumn and then yeah. she was. I awesome. got Madonna's yeah. big coming out of this year and i got you yeah. tom tommy smith tommy wong da, 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 da. toby it was toby toby wong oh my goodness oh my goodness i knew because then i realized i couldn't watch it with my dog he'd get too confused hearing his name over and over again yes <laughs> toby 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 wong toby yeah all right, well, our movie this time around is Reservoir Dogs. It came out on the 9th of October, 1992, rated R for obvious reasons, as Dennis found out as well. Hmm. A runtime was one hour and 39 minutes, directed and written by Quentin Tarantino, who did Pulp Fiction. He wrote From Dust Till Dawn. He also wrote and directed Jackie Brown, Kill Bill, a bunch of other movies. Producer on this one was Lawrence Bender. He produced Pulp Fiction and Kill Bill. Music, there's no composer on this one because it's all popular music used off the off the radio. Cinematography was done by Andrzej Sekula, who also did American Psycho and Pulp Fiction. Editor was Sally Menke, who died in 2010. She edited Pulp Fiction and Kill Bill. The budget was $3 million. The box office was $2.9 million. Flickmetrics gives it an 83%. CinemaScore did not have a score for this one. Harvey Keitel plays Mr. White or Larry. He was in Pulp Fiction, The Grand Budapest Hotel. Tim Roth plays Mr. Orange or Freddy. He was in Rob Roy and Planet of the Apes. Michael Madsen played Mr. Blonde or Vic Vega. He was in Species and Kill Bill. Chris Penn, who died in 2006, played Nice Guy Eddie. He was in Shortcuts and Footloose. 
Steve Buscemi played Mr. Pink. He was in Armageddon and Fargo. Lawrence Tierney, who died in 2002, played Joe Cabot. He was in Born to Kill and The Bodyguard. Not The, body, not the Bodyguard, but Bodyguard. Randy Brooks played Holdaway. He was in Colors and the TV show Nash Bridges. Kirk Baltz played Marvin Nash. He was in NCIS Los Angeles and Wicked City. Edward Bunker, who died in 2005, played Mr. Blue. He was in Tango and Cash and the 2005 version of The Longest Yard. Quentin Tarantino played Mr. Brown. He was in Pulp Fiction and From Dust Till Dawn. And the K-Billy DJ was played by Stephen Wright. He was in So I Married an Axe Murderer and Natural Born Killers. Six crooks with fictitious identities who are strangers to one another are hired to commit a robbery. Police ambush the heist, forcing the group to shoot their way out. The survivors attempt to identify the traitor in their midst at their rendezvous in the warehouse after realizing that they were set up. Put the gun down! Hear your names, Mr. White, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Pink. Why am I Mr. Pink? Who cares what your name is? Yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're Mr. White. You have a cool-sounding name. Let's go to work. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. What happens if the manager won't give you the diamonds? Cut off one of his fingers. The little one. I feel scared in case I fall off the chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. If they hadn't done what I told them not to do, they'd still be alive. You're acting like a first year thief. I'm acting like a professional. Choice we've been doing 10 years. Taking out some shit for months. Ain't no choice at all. Bam. Bam. Bam, 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 bam. You're under arrest, sugar. Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Chris Penn, Steve Buscemi, Lawrence Tierney, and Michael Madsen. They're the Reservoir Dogs. Hey, Joe, I'm going to shoot this guy. All right, so a couple of quick little trivia pieces on this movie. They were trying to keep this budget so low and so tight that they pretty much just ask everybody, bring your own clothes. You know, just whatever you got. You got a suit. All you need is like a black suit, tie, whatever you got. Bring that. Wear that. Cars in the movie, like the the Cadillac in the movie, belonged to Michael Madsen. So basically everybody was just told, bring your own stuff because we don't really have the money to rent any of these other things. They didn't even they didn't even pay to have, like, the, the police department block off streets for them when they were doing filming. So in the scene where... Mr. Pink pulls the woman out of the car. That whole scene, they had to do that while there was a red light at that intersection because they, they did not have the police escort to be able to shut down the streets long enough for them mm. to do the filming. So apparently this was all filmed in about 35 days and sometimes very, very quickly in certain scenes. But it does sound like a lot of times they were just told, bring what you got because we're not going to, we don't have the budget to pay for this. I guess originally... One of Tarantino's original thoughts for this was he was going to try to film this in black and white and get it done for less than $16,000 and, and just ask people, would you like to, you're, we're friends, would you like to be in my movie? And it was going to be a, a extremely low budget movie filmed in black and white and just 
that was one of his original plans. And I guess at some point then when Harvey Keitel got involved in it, Harvey Keitel was like, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. I will pay for us to have a little bit of a higher budget. And like, I'll put my own money in for us to have a higher budget on this. So they did end up with the, what did I say it was? Like it was a $3 million budget. Not all of that was, was Harvey Keitel's money, but he did, he did then become a producer on the movie so that he could provide some more of the, the funding for it. One of the other interesting trivia pieces to this is they pretty much their entire budget that they had for music was pretty much spent on getting the rights for Stuck in the Middle with You. Mm. All the rest of the stuff, like they, they didn't have to pay as much for all of that, but I, that was pretty much their whole musical budget was just trying to get the rights for that because he just felt like that scene and that song had to go together. So he had to have that song. I wonder what they paid for that, did they say? I don't know. I couldn't find an amount. But yeah. It's interesting because certain artists, it's like, okay, first of all, who's this guy, Quentin Tarantino? It's not a right. big, huge budget film. And the way you're going to use my song, I mean, I know at least most of the artists I know are pretty pretty picky when it comes to that. Like, I know, again, a big Peter Gabriel fan, and he's pretty selective on a lot of the things that he used to give, and he need to know, like, what's the scene? And he didn't... It was kind of this, they didn't want their very, a lot of artists don't want their music associated with something that's going to be as negative as that scene is. I mean, how do you not hear that? Because really it changes what that song was. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you hear that song, you think of that scene. I, every time it's on the radio, every time I hear that, I'm thinking of that scene. Pat, Pat. <laughs> it's looking like you're dozing off there, sorry. No, no, no. I'm, uh, I'm, 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 my, uh, my cat, uh, my cat woke up and it's starting to attack my feet. So I'm like, uh, looking down. Yeah. But yeah, oh, the, yeah. Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm just, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to break it up. I'm awake. I'm just fighting off a vicious well, cat. I would think with Pat, with the music and everything else, it's like any tune. I mean, I mean, you guys all are experts on Pat with the music teacher. It's like a lot of times getting rights or securing anything or using a song is, is, you know, it's, a, it's look, look what uh, Stranger Things has done for. Uh, Kate Bush and running up the hill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, which, yeah I, it's, which oddly yeah, enough is. That's going to be when she, she's an artist who was very, when she, she had to have it explained to her again, how they're going to use it, what role it played from everything I've read, you know, and I'm just surprised in some ways that they signed off on that because it wasn't a big budget movie. I wonder how much they got for it. And the way you're using it is going to really connect it to a pretty graphic, brutal scene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, their alternative for that, if they couldn't get it, he wanted to use the song Ballroom Blitz. Mm. Hmm. And that's like a completely different, yeah, vibe. like a completely different vibe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> the only other thing I can, I, that comes to mind and it's a different feel, but oh, hang on. Spoilers. American werewolf. Is it American werewolf in London? Uh, yeah. By Warren Zevon. Right. No, well, what's the name of the movie? Werewolves what's of the mo- Oh, the oh. About Blue Moon? You talking yeah, about Blue Moon. That which movie was that? American Werewolf in London. That's American Werewolf in London. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and so like the way they use that song has such a punch in that movie. Completely different emotional thing that like this one does, but like the way it's kind of got that boom 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 for this movie that that bouncing yeah. It almost makes it. Well, this one, like, the contrast makes it so, it's so sadistic. And so, yeah, just 
but he, but he's just playing. I mean, yeah. that's the whole thing that makes it so like, and I mean, obviously we have just far gotten, we've gotten way over our skis. We haven't done major plot points or deep thoughts or anything, but I mean, you're, you're right. Like this song, just the way it bounces along really paints what that character is. Like, I mean, he is just, Ooh, you know? Yeah. Disturbing. So yeah, I think all your, your points that you're saying, like, yeah, that's, it's crazy how much, you know, I, it'd be crazy to know how much they paid for it, but then also, Hey, is everybody okay with this? You know, that we're yeah. using the song for that. He paid, he actually paid $13,000. Wow. <laughs> So, so here's some interesting stories. I, I just found, I was doing a quick Google search and I just found it because the the version that they used was the Steelers wheel, and it looks like he contacted the record label because I guess typically for a, a song like that, you would be paying upwards of, I mean, possibly close to half a million dollars to mm. be able to use a, a pretty famous song in your movie. But I found this article, and it says, Quentin, Quentin Tarantino said, we had a $13,000 music budget. I knew I wanted Stuck in the Middle with you. I asked what the record label would charge, and the rep from the record label says, what's your budget? I said 13000 and she said, that's what I'm charging. <laughs> so apparently mm-hmm. he got it for that. No, here's, here's the interesting thing is, is it the guy's name is Pat Rafferty, I think it was? Is it Pat Rafferty? Okay. Am I getting the first name right? Let me check really fast. Before you say, I'm sorry, I'm Jerry, how, Jerry Rafferty. How much input did he have, or was it all the record company making the call? It sounds like it was all the record company making the call yeah. because Jerry Rafferty was the guy's name. Says he, I guess he died in 2011. He said that he hated it being used for such a violent scene. So it sounds like it was the record label that made the yeah. decision and didn't really include him in it. Probably didn't have the right, yeah. Yeah. And that's a lot, a lot of times that they didn't, they used to sign up and give away other rights. That's yeah. why certain artists would have it. I remember Bruce Springsteen with Born in the USA. There's certain times where it's like some artists will not give up the rights to their songs because they, they lose the, the the control of it. So it sounds yeah. like they, that's what I was wondering if they didn't even have control. Yeah. And they signed that over early with the hopes to get a deal or a record deal or a signing or studio time, whatever it was. So they right. often will, will lose that and they don't have the rights. Right. right. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. All right. So our, our typical, our typical first questions is when was the first time you saw this movie? Do you remember when the first time was that you saw this movie and just in general getting us started off? Do you like this movie? I was probably in high school. I think I'd already seen Pulp Fiction. And, you know, this Quentin Tarantino guy, hmm, let's go check this out. And we found it there, and it was something we would watch randomly when a bunch of guys get together in high school and we need something to do on a Friday night. Who's got Reservoir Dogs? Let's go. And, yeah, yeah, I've always liked it. I think it's probably the same for me. I, Bo, you and I might have watched it together. I don't even know. I was going to say, I, the more I think about it, it's possible. <laughs> yeah, because it, it was the same thing for me. I And I don't recall the first time I watched Pulp Fiction, but Pulp Fiction was my gateway drug into the rest of Tarantino. And from there, I know uh, Pulp Fiction came first. I probably watched From Dust Till Dawn next. Psychos? Psychos? Were they Psychos? 
I don't give up how crazy they are. That was probably next. And then Reservoir Dogs was definitely probably close behind those two. And then I don't think I wasn't, I think that I maybe saw Jackie Brown in the theater when it came out. Mm-hmm. That might have been the first one I saw in the theater. I, I didn't like Jackie. I mean, it wasn't bad. I didn't like Jackie Brown as much as I did those other ones. But Pulp Fiction was def- definitely my my entry into Tarantino and his world. And the whole, and we'll talk about this with this movie too, but the whole nonlinear narrative storytelling was just, it kind of, I hadn't seen anything like it. So it kind of blew my mind at that point in high school. And I was like, this is, this is pretty cool. And then going back and watching Reservoir Dogs, which to a degree has some of that, you know, you've got the different flashbacks in in some of the different segments. You know, I, I think same thing, Reservoir Dogs at the time, it was so similar to Fault Fiction in in tone and and everything else that i i just i ate it up so yeah so i i like this movie i really enjoy this movie you know if i'm we're not getting into like ranking of the movies yet but i mean pulp fiction is still definitely my favorite of his but to go back and and realize that this was his first you know full-length film yeah no i i really enjoy this one but yeah high school we might have even watched it together i don't know got you going right yeah, I uh, I saw it in college, and I'm trying to remember if I saw Pulp Fiction first or if I saw this one first. And I it was I it would have been uh, like my second year in college because I uh, there was a guy that was in the music studio and he was in the dorm and I we talked movies all the time and like there was just this whole all year was this you haven't seen this you haven't seen this you haven't seen this. Oh man. And, and the, I want to say Reservoir Dogs and then Pulp Fiction were both, were both at the same, at the same time. And honestly, I've been sitting here while you guys were talking. I don't know which one I saw first. They might've been on like the same night, but uh, yeah, I, 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 I could sit here for the next hour going, ah, I don't know. Was it, did I see Reservoir Dogs first or Pulp Fiction first? Tommy Wong, Tommy Chong. I, uh, do I like the movie? Yeah, I, I'm totally captivated by it. I don't know if I can say that the way I enjoy this movie is like the same way I would enjoy Batman 89 or Commando or something like that, but I don't want to split hairs. I definitely take in with the movie. And uh, yeah, especially because I, I, like I said, I think this was my, this was my first experience with Quentin Tarantino. First, first experience with Quentin Tarantino as well. Saw it probably right when it came out on video or cable. I can't remember if it was on cable or if it was on video or not for us, but it might have been VHS or something like that. But we got it from the video store. We'd not see it at the theater. And yeah, I mean, I've, I've kind of, I guess I would say it's, I have a certain admiration for movies. And I know I mentioned before filming, we were talking like, the uh, black phone i love 12 angry men the uh, the devil with um, m night Shyamalan. any movies that involve limited locations limited budget that can just keep you enthralled and entertained and like you said in a, in a different way this one is because the violence and things like that but the story and what's happening and just kind of keep you glued. I think it was just impressive storytelling. And it's like what I kind of, when I start trying to think of ideas, I always go, what can I do? That's low budget, but works, you know? So when somebody pulls it off, I just totally admire that because 
know, they're not, they're not working with a huge budget. They don't have 35 days, even Blair Witch Project, any of those that somebody just says, hey, I'm going to take this camera. I don't have enough money to do Jurassic Park or Star Wars with it, but I'm going to make sure people are interested for the, for the length of this film. And I think it does that. And, and like I said, so, so for me, I was immediately impressed with Tarantino, even though this is a bit more on the kind of violent side and has some, obviously kind of some disturbing scenes in there. And, uh, but, uh, but yeah, like it was fun to get to go back. Like I said, saw Pulp Fiction first fun to get to go back and see an earlier Quentin Tarantino movie and, and just kind of see him working out some of the things that would be fully fleshed out by the time you get to Pulp Fiction. And, and one of the things I loved about this is, this is prior to the MCU is you always kind of felt like Quentin Tarantino's movies had a shared universe. Even in these early movies, once I started watching uh, Reservoir Dogs, I was like, wait a minute, Harvey Keitel is in this one. He's using a different name. He's not called the wolf. Is that the same character? Or, wait a minute, the guy's name is Vic Vega. What was John Travolta's name? Vincent Vega was John Travolta's name. Like, I remember even watching this for the first time thinking, is that related? Is that like, what, what's, what's going on here? And I, I liked all those little connections, but the other thing I mentioned earlier about it too, was just the, the way he did his storytelling. Like I liked the nonlinear storytelling in Pulp Fiction. Like that was, I had never seen a movie like that before. So to me, that was like, this is cool. Like this is different. It's, you're still tying the story together, but you're telling it completely out of order. And, and it just, yeah, it, it kind of blew my mind at that point. I'd never seen anything quite like that. And same thing with this one, too, is it kind of you're jumping back, you're telling the story, you know, but then you're jumping back in time to see how did Mr. White get into this whole thing? How did Mr. Orange get into this whole thing? You know, how did Mr. Blonde get into this whole thing? And I think a couple of things that that made this movie made me latch on to this immediately was, I mean, it's, it's basically a heist movie and you never see the heist. It's a crime movie, and you never actually see the crime. Other than some follow-up crimes of mutilating and killing cops and things like that, you don't ever see what the initial crime was supposed to be. You don't see this this diamond heist that they were supposed to be pulling off. You just see the results of it. And and I thought at the time, like, that, that was really clever. Like, at that time, I can't say I had seen a ton of movies to be able to say, oh, yeah, and all my encyclopedic knowledge of movies, I've never seen a film like this. But it was just it was a, it was such a novel idea of it's a heist movie, but the first scene that I get, unless you, I'm, I'm kind of counting the diner as like a prologue, that it's not really necessarily part of the quote unquote movie, even though it is. I kind of count that first scene as being Mr. Orange bleeding out in the back of the car, and for that to be beyond the prologue of the diner scene, for it to just kick right into that, I'm like, holy cow. Like that's, that's an intense first scene in the movie. And once you get past the diner and the, and the, the credits and everything else, like that's, that's a pretty intense way to start this thing. I mean, the diner scene, the diner scene in and of itself was a fairly <laughs> intense way to start the movie, but more along the lines of dialogue and not somebody bleeding out in the back of the car. Now we understand though, why, how the wolf knows how to clean the interior of a car. If that is the mm-hmm. same character in, in Pulp Fiction. I, uh, 
and and I I think it what's amazing is that amazing is the wrong word, but I think what's so powerful too is that you transition into that very shocking scene with Mr. Orange bleeding in the backseat of the car. You get that sound effects of his of him crying out, of him calling out, kind of comes in as the song is fading. You know what I'm saying? So it's like yeah. if you check that out, it's like you hear the song, and then all of a sudden in the background you start to hear some guy scream, and you're like, "Am I hearing that right? Mm-hmm. Is that what I'm really?" And then all of a sudden the song kind of quiets down, and then you get you realize what you're hearing. Yeah. Well, and and um, it's and it's crazy because you think of a movie like this, either either whether it's gangsters or criminals or whatever. I mean, this is a bunch of tough guys, a bunch of tough guys that are going to be pulling this heist. And yet this guy is like whining and screaming and crying. And he's not acting like a tough guy in the backseat of the car. So already that's kind of a jarring start to the movie. I, I feel like if you watch another action movie like this and some person has been shot in the belly, that they are going to be like, oh, it's, it's fine. You know, it's fine. Just give me the hospital when you can. I'll, I'll be all right. Whereas in this, he is he is whining and whimpering, and so it's kind of a shock, you know. If you, you sure. go go in, you're gonna think you think you're seeing some one kind of movie, and yet the character immediately. I'm 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 watching this. I'm going, yeah, that would be me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I go watch all these crime movies, and the criminals are all real tough guys, and they get shot, and it's like, ah, it's but a scratch. But no, that would be me, probably like whining and crying and moaning in the back of the car, bleeding out to death. Probably be most people. Mm-hmm. Well, I hear it's it's the most painful place to get shot, other than the kneecap. It's it's going to take <laughs> you a while to die, but it is one of the more painful places to get shot, as I understand it. Yeah, I think uh, that, you know, like I said, the diner scene does set it up enough to where you have at least a little bit of understanding of some of the characters and the dialogue, and it gives them, and then it just yeah, and then all of a sudden, bam, it just jumps into it. Yeah. So I think it sets it up. I mean, you're sitting around eating breakfast and having some coffee and talking, and all of a sudden, bam, it's like right there, and now we're into it. Yeah. So that was a good choice, especially, again, when you think about low budget. You have that room, and you have the diner. I mean, mm-hmm. really, it's probably like there, there's not a lot of locations here. And you're kind of left. I mean, it, it's a little It's a little bit like how, how Hitchcock would leave a lot of things to your imagination. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. and the and the best horror movies, you don't show the you don't show the alien, you don't show the monster until later on, if at all. You know, you, you keep it hidden. And in this movie, they do that with the heist. It's I can run through my mind all the different ways. So I don't know who the who the rat is. I don't know who the traitor is, because I didn't get to see the heist scene. If I had seen the heist scene, there might have been too many clues to give it away, and I wouldn't have gotten the twist later on that Mr. Orange is a cop. You know, so I I love the fact that he does not include what went down to cause all this to happen, because that still that that to me then raises the tension because I have no clue. Like I I am I am along for the ride with the rest of the characters. I'm finding out when they are. I'm not some omniscient audience member who knows more than they do. I I know as much if not less than the characters do. Yeah. Well, I think that's what helps you stay glued to it too. Is you're just trying to you're trying to figure this out too, and you don't know. People are walking in, and who's who's this one? What what happened? And what what happened to them? And you're trying to figure out who's gone and, and who was the colors. I mean, I think we either sometimes not re, replay or rewind like back, but eventually just trying to keep track of everybody because you don't have easy names to remember by. Mm-hmm. 
And like you said, they're telling the story and they're kind of like saying things that this guy thought happened. So it's, it's all in your head. So the whole heist is never filmed. It was like they made the decision that this would have been too expensive to film the heist or with our budget goals and, and allocation. So it's, it's just great that it's all in their head. It's all in your head. It's, it's you're creating the, that's kind of a Rod Serling type of technique. Of let the script give you and radio, radio, John, you worked in radio and stuff. It's too, it's like how you, how you, it's, it, it, this could play almost as a radio, radio show. Yeah. If you think about it, you don't see it. You, you, if you heard the sounds and you heard the gunshots and you heard the him crying in the back of that car, like you hear all that, it, you're going to be picturing it. Yeah. And you can mm-hmm. literally have made this a radio, a 1950s radio or a podcast, like a just radio show yeah. the way that you do in the old days. And, and it would have been, would have been perfect. It would work great. Yeah. The shadow, all those things. It's... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, was, that was going to be one of my next questions is some people absolutely love it. Some people, they feel like it can get a little tiresome sometimes. But I think one of the things that marks a Quentin Tarantino movie is dialogue. And really, there, while we do have some scenes in this movie where you do have some some clear action going on, some some gunfighting going on, pretty decent portion of the movie the majority of the movie is dialogue it's the characters talking back and forth and that's pretty much that that's been a hallmark of at least some of the early quentin tarantino movies especially pulp fiction pulp fiction is really a a series of conversations and there's the occasional action bit here and there but so how do you guys feel about that do you when you watch a tarantino movie are you hooked by the dialogue or does it get to be a little a little much sometimes for you I've always liked the dialogue. Agreed. I think it's, you know, it has a rhythm to it that is, that it's really good. Well, it's, I think it's a good question because I would say overall, yeah, I like the dialogue, but at the same time, there's times where you do catch yourself just, I'm trying to Django Unchained. Um, where there's some long dialogue that just goes on and it's interesting, but at the same time, you realize it's going on a long time. And if, and, and the thing is you know that there are obviously me and Pat talk for five hours, but it's like, there, there are times where you, where you have conversations that last a long time. And I don't know. I, I think it, I, I could definitely see how people could be turned off by the dialogue or frustrated, maybe not turned up frustrated by it sometimes, mm-hmm. but uh, but that's that's people in real life have odd conversations about stuff, and sometimes it's just funny to hear some of the stuff and what, where he goes with the dialogue and what makes it into the movie as he's writing it. Like I always think of that process where was he having this conversation with friends? I mean, we've talked about this before. I said if I ever write a thing, there's like so many conversations I've had with coworkers and friends that I'm going. Man, somewhere I got to slip that into a, into a movie. You know, that conversation has nothing to do with the movie, but it's got to be in there. You know, and I think that's what Quentin Tarantino almost has done, where he's used dialogue. Maybe that's already happened in his life with people, and and he in in those stories just make them more human, more real. Not in a human for me. Like obviously, these people are pretty violent. This one, I'm talking about like more more real, I guess, because that's. People have not everybody just says the lines that matter and move the story. A lot of people have dialogue that doesn't move the story, 
and therefore it just works. It's his trademark. So yeah, I mean, I'm good with it, but I, I can definitely get that sense once in a while how other people might not be. I always, for me, the thing about Tarantino's dialogue is I always, I was always kind of hooked into the whole thing because I, I wanted to hear what kind of crazy stuff they would say next. Like there's always, <laughs> there's always something a little unexpected about what they're going to say and, and how horribly offensive is it going to be or what movie reference are they going to drop or TV show reference or, or something oh, like that. Yeah. Right, right. Music, yeah, musical reference. You know, so I was always kind of hooked into the dialogue because I'm like, wow, other people talk like this? This is kind of cool. I want to be in a group of people that talk like this. Like, not maybe the horribly offensive stuff, but like having strained arguments about music and, and movies and TV shows. And look at this. We have a podcast. But yeah, that was that was the dialogue piece of it. I was, was something I always enjoyed about the the Tarantino movies. So let me ask you guys this question, because as I was reading up a little bit on this movie, I, I kind of saw two different ways of looking at this. One of the criticisms that I saw for this movie that folks said, well, this is his first movie, he's better at it later on, but this one kind of suffers from it. One of the criticisms I saw laid at this movie's feet was that other than the diner scene at the beginning of the movie, you really don't get a whole lot of character development. Do you guys agree with that? Hmm. Other than the yeah. diner scene at the beginning, and when they well, have the little when they have the little flashbacks, and you learn a little bit about these characters, otherwise they kind of some people have felt that the majority of the scenes that take place in the warehouse, you're not really getting any character development, and they're just talking in circles. I, is there supposed to be character development in this? No, I think it's crucial that there isn't in this one because right. you'd be guessing who's the who's who's the uh, the traitor here, who's the uh, Who's the one who's was not the right guy? You know, so I think you want to be confused, and it, it needs to spin in the circles, and it needs to not have. There's one guy that they kind of make you feel a bit good, and you know, like it can't be him, and they think it's him. But I remember I was thinking like, oh yeah, his character. I don't want it to be him. It's not him, you know. And then it's it's kind of a whodunit. So you you don't want to have the characters too developed too much. Yeah. And and you want it you want it to be. As you, as you start watching this, I, I was struck with, it's not so much character development, but character, well, I'm, I'm going to restate what you just said. It's more about revealing the characters, mm-hmm. right? And not only revealing who's the rat, but it's also revealing who these characters really are. Like Mr. White, I always watch this and I'd always think, okay, well, he's the experienced kind of sage taking Mr. Orange under his wing kind of guy. And then you find out, he's really not that much smarter of an individual as like Mr. Pink. It's just, he's been doing this longer and actually he's making mistakes. Right. And then as you go a little bit further, he's not like, you know, fluffy grandpa kind of guy, or he's like a cold blooded killer. They're all, I mean, almost all of them, when they speak, they're almost all pretty bigoted guys too. Like, it's just, well, these are, I these mean, are like tough guys. What was that? And businessmen, it's all business. Like it's, they're, they're, yeah. business. I mean, it's just, there's a job yeah. that we do and they've di- disconnected from the morality of it. It's just, you know. Yeah. And but, so 
And and that's but who don't have really morality and and but there is a certain code still within them and that's not being a, a pigeon stool pigeon or a rat or a right form. right that's where and they, s- uh, i read somewhere that that opening conversation was just so that mr blue could get some lines which yeah i read the same thing yeah which i think is fun but i mean i, I think what it adds to the story other than allowing the guy to have some lines I think what it adds to the story is you kind of see these characters in a different light before you even know who they are. I mean, until you, unless you watch the trailer and say, yep, they're going to go on a bank heist. You don't even know what they were doing. They're just some guys like sitting around shooting the breeze. And so you kind of see them in a different light. Well, and what's fun though, is I, I read through this this one article that said if you watch that conversation caref- carefully, it foreshadows all the different characters and kind of what's coming. And so I, I it was it was advertised as well. We needed to give Mister Blue lines, so we'll put the scene in there. But boy, that scene really that opening conversation really set up a whole lot about the movie. Yeah. And I love how the other opportunities you get to maybe find out what this heist was. You know, they have that one flashback scene where he gets them all together, and it's it's kind of like the, it's like the it's like Ocean's Eleven, or it's like the preparation to attack the Death Star. You've got everything up on the board, and like here's the plan. Here's what we're gonna do. Here's what we do. they don't even get a chance to talk about it because that's the point where everybody's like, all right, well you're Mister White, you're Mister Pink, you're Mister. Well, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. I I don't want to be Mister Pink. I want to be, can I be Mr. Purple? And I, you don't even get to hear, you had an opportunity to hear what the, what the heist was going to be and the whole plan and everything else. And it gets interrupted by all these guys arguing over what their name is going to be. Yeah. And I think just little moments like that. I mean, I think you learn enough when I read about that criticism, I was like, but I think I learned enough of what I needed to know about these people in the diner scene. You know, I, I, from their conversation about Madonna and music to, yeah. The little bickering and arguing they do with each other to the whole conversation over tipping. I'm like, I think I need, I know enough of what I need to know to just form enough of an opinion to follow the rest of this movie. And I, I'm not sure yeah. I need more than that. Yep. I, that would be my, my thing is whoever the critic or whatever, just ask like, what, what would you have liked to have seen? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I'd be curious. Like what, but, and again, this being one of his first movies, too, I think while he uses the dialogue in great ways, I think you see him master that and it becomes more trademark in many of his movies. What I was going to say was just this, the idea of it, it really, I was trying to think of the word and it's suspense. He uses dialogue as suspense where, where I think of the conversations in Pulp Fiction. I think there, there are these almost, they're not monologues. It's a conversation typically between two characters going back and forth. But you could just feel the tension rising. And when you see Samuel Jackson talking, you see the guys in that in that room at the beginning, at, earlier in the movie, it's like they're just looking at him, and they're almost like there's just this something's going to happen. It's going to climax at some point and, and, and blow up and reach something. Probably in his, because Tarantino usually pretty violent, but it's almost like this, what we would think of as trivial dialogue is really creating this underlying tension throughout the scene. And that's all I would say when I look, when I, one of the reasons I like his dialogue is because it, it, the stories may seem trivial. In many cases they are, 
but realistically they're, they're, they're serving a purpose to build tension within the scenes. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm trying to think of it like, like just, I'm trying to think of there's another movie or another character. Where it's like where somebody's just saying something and you know what they're saying doesn't seem evil or doesn't seem bad, but you know, it's, it's, this isn't good. And I can't think of what movie, what, what I'm thinking of, but I've been trying to, but that's what he does so well with his dialogue is it builds suspense. I mean, Inglorious Bastards with him and with what's his name talking to the two. I think you just know something's it's gonna explode. Something's gonna happen, and it's just the slow d- 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 bingo. And the whole, <laughs> just the whole, just, uh, just yeah, just I think that's that's what he does best. And I don't think he had it mastered here yet, being his first film. But I think he found the power of that throughout this film, and then honed it and perfected it throughout the rest of his films. What about, so I was going to ask you guys about this too, because Tarantino does this in a lot of his movies, and it, it also makes me think of James Gunn and kind of what he did with the soundtrack for Guardians of the Galaxy, that music is always a big piece of what Tarantino does and how he shapes his movies. I listened to, there was this really interesting take of this on, it might have been a YouTube video that I found, where it talked about how if you look at, I don't know if it's all of or most of, Tarantino's movies the reason that the storytelling is not linear is because Tarantino tends to structure his movies the same way you would structure an album and the point that they made they actually made a comparison they're like it's it's like if you look at they made a comparison with the Beatles and they said it's like if you took Abbey Road and you know he he starts yes you have the prologue of the diner scene but he basically starts with like boom hit song right here at the beginning it's you've got him bleeding out in the back of the car you start with a hit song and then you kind of weave in some of the other songs in the album it would be like the difference between starting off abbey road with one of the big hits or starting it with maxwell's silver hammer you know it's it's a completely different way to start the album and they kind of went through and they picked apart some of tarantino's movies and they said if you look at it the way he does his narrative structure is he really wants to like hit you with something right there at the very beginning and then he will weave in even if they're not in chronological order he'll weave in the rest of the story so it all kind of works together i thought that was kind of an interesting take on it because every tarantino movie that i've ever watched it's immediately even if i don't recognize some of the music like i was was not into surfer music when i was in high school but after watching pulp fiction you better believe i went and bought that album right away and for the next probably six months driving around in my Buick LeSabre, I was probably pumping a whole bunch of surfer music for a good stretch of time there. So I don't know. You, you talk to me a little bit about the music. What does is, what is the music do for you in this one? None of it's composed. It's all it's all taken from popular music. So. Point and it's an analysis that, that that's comparing how he structures a movie to how you structure an album which is that going to date our podcast because do people even get albums anymore? Right. So that's just a, a whole interesting thing. I, I, I care. I care. I, I still demand, I, I still insist on getting my music on physical media. No, I, I'll tell you it. It's the songs just, they somehow in it, whether it's the message of them, the, the overall sound of it, 
however they use it. And I think Scorsese does this in some of his films too. Maybe all of them. I don't know. You guys tell me if I'm right or wrong on this one, but it's like they pick a song that just really encapsulates the scene. Right. I'm thinking of Goodfellas when it's, and then he kissed me like, boy, that just encapsulates that scene. The whole, the song with that brutal torture scene that encapsulates what that character, like what's going on in his head, especially when you put it with that thing, you know, I don't want any information. You don't tell me it doesn't matter. I'm here to do one thing. Like the guy was just, Mr. Blonde is just psychopathic you know, and that song encapsulates kind of like what's going on in in his head. You know what I'm saying? Even the opening song when they all come walking out of the diner and they're doing the slow-mo walk. And I mean, that encapsulates what you're supposed to think of these guys. So I don't think I've really added anything other than just a whole lot of words just to say, yeah, the songs that they pick help help give you help give you another way to kind of identify and place what these characters are and what's going on. You know, he's just doing it with pop music as opposed to a score written with themes and accompaniments to do that. Does that, do you get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's songs you remember. I mean, he does it a lot in all of his movies, but we were talking at the start of the podcast, like, that song is irrevocably tied to this movie. And he just does it in a way that is different from most other filmmakers. I mean, who else do you see who does it quite the same way? You know, you mentioned a couple, but it's, it's few and far between. And I think that's what makes him stand out in our minds anyway. I'd be curious. Does he ever say anywhere in interviews? I mean, some does he? Does the scene write the? Does the music write the scene, or does the scene write the music? Mm, or choose the, or does the scene choose the music, or does the music write the scene? You know, yeah. Sometimes I'll hear a song, and it's like you just start thinking of something, and it creates a scene. Might not even have a rest of the movie to go with it, but it's just like, wow, this would have been like this is what this makes me think of. We we did they used to do that with a. I didn't do it so much with, uh, with, with lyrical songs, although I personally, I do, but in school I did it with scores and I would use scores that I knew kids didn't hear or movies that they hadn't seen. And I would kind of start playing the music and have them close their eyes, put their head down. And then at the end we would all get up and they would start telling me what they pictured, what they see. And they would actually have some scenes in their head, which is kind of cool. So I always wonder what the songs that, that he chooses I mean, he, I know he loves a lot of retro and old classics and stuff. And it's like, how long has he had these ideas in his head? Or does he just go, this is what the story's about, but I'm going to use all oh, that song. And he's got that library or that catalog in his head. And he just pulls from it. You know, I always wonder which one drives which with him. So there's a, there's a, a collection of Quentin Tarantino's movies called the Tarantino collection, or actually it's, it's a collection of the soundtracks from his different movies and, and the collection of the songs. And I guess there's a booklet in there where he has, in some of the liner notes of this, he talks a little bit about that. And so I've, I've actually got some direct quotes from Tarantino on this. He says, 
One of the things I do when I'm starting a movie, when I'm writing a movie or when I have an idea for a film is I go through my record collection and I just start playing songs, trying to find the personality of the movie, find the spirit of the movie, and then boom, eventually I'll hit one, two, three songs, one song in particular, and I say, oh, this will be a great opening credit song. And then he said, to me, the opening credits are very important because that's the only mood time that most movies give themselves. A cool credit sequence and the music that plays in front of it or note played or any music, whatever you decide to do, that sets the tone for the movie, that's important for you. So I'm always trying to find what the right opening or closing credit should be early on when I'm even just thinking about the story. Once I find it, that really kind of triggers me into what the personality of the piece should be and what the rhythm of this piece should be. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, that's interesting. It even mentions in here, it talks about, uh, it says, no Tarantino song discussion is complete without mentioning Reservoir Dogs, which set the tone early for extreme violence and extreme fun juxtaposed against each other in the ear slicing scene. So here's here's a direct quote from Tarantino on that one. That's one of the things about using music in movies that's so cool, is the fact that if you do it right, if you use the right song in the right scene, Really, when you take songs and put them in a sequence in a movie, right, it's about as cinematic a thing as you can do. You're really doing what movies do better than any other art form. It really works in this visceral, emotional, cinematic way that's just very special. He said, when you do it right and you hit it right, then the effect is you can never really hear this song again without without thinking of that image from the movie. Like, Dennis, what you said. He, He said, I don't know if Jerry Rafferty necessarily appreciated the connotation that I brought to Stuck in the Middle with you. There's a good chance he didn't. Yeah. How do you feel about that as an artist? There's a question. Yeah. You know, legally, it was owned by the record company, but yeah, that's interesting taking something like that. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's funny. His his and Dennis, you saying that you can't hear that song without thinking about that scene in the movie. I mean, same thing. And and in particular, Tarantino movies, there are songs that now I have heard that I knew, I knew the song before watching yep. Pulp Fiction, but now after watching Pulp Fiction, I cannot separate the Captain Kangaroo song. I cannot kept separate that song from right. that scene in the movie. I cannot separate. The, the scene with the gimp. I cannot separate that music from yeah. that scene in the movie. You know, and that's that's just... Tarantino in particular, and to another degree, I think James Gunn with the Guardians of the Galaxy movies has also done that really well. Yeah. Um, and, and, and which is funny because when the... When the Uga Chaka, Uga Chaka, when it showed up in this movie, I was like, oh, I didn't even remember that song was in this movie. I always think of Guardians of the Galaxy when I see, when I hear that song. So I, there's plenty of instances where a director that does that well, that takes the music and, and and maybe uses it while he's writing or to give him give him ideas, I won't be able to hear certain songs anymore without connecting them to a very particular scene in a in a movie. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it's it's not a new song that is written for the film. It's an old song that already had meaning probably for you, or at least memories and knowledge, and it rewrites it in your brain. Right. You know, and like I said, bringing up Kate Bush with uh, Running Up the Hill. 
big Kate Bush fan, always have been love Hounds love one of my top 10 probably favorite albums of all time. And, and now it's going to be forever linked with, with that, with uh, stranger things forever. Yeah. It's changed. It's, it's a perfect case of that happening. Not so maybe knowledgeable, but like the, uh, this, this, this one here, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but let's see if it'll play. There we go. Ready? What do you think of? I think of Bugs Bunny. Oh, really? Okay, so that's interesting. Insidious, if you've seen Insidious. Oh, I have, yeah. Okay. Insidious, for me, every time I hear Tiny tiny Tim's tiptoe through the tulips, it's in such a creepy way with Insidious, and there's a scene where he's up there kind of weaving something with... You get the, the 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 wheel or whatever, and it's just it's just it's a creepy. Who takes that song and says that's the song that I'm gonna connect with this? You yeah. know, nothing to do with with horror really, but it it's that weird how he literally rewrites that song. I mean, the song's a weird song, but it's mm-hmm. not a it's not a scary song. Yeah, you know. But now you hear it, and it's like I I would I would play that song for <laughs> when I would torture my daughter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> After she saw that, there'd be times at night she'd be like the last one to go to bed because she'd stay up or something. And all of a sudden, you just go ahead and you play that song on your on your phone <laughs> or something like that, and you hear it, and she hears it. She's like, "Shut up, not funny." Mm-hmm. <laughs> she would freak out because that song would just it, it it just had that connection. So yeah, when you have any song that can be rewritten to create a different mood than was intended from the original song, like you said, that's when you know you've kind of nailed it. Yeah. So since we're having fun with Tarantino and music, I, I wanted to play a couple of songs here and there and see if you could tell me what scene from a movie or, or what, yeah, what scene from a movie this makes you think of. And I want to see how quickly you can answer because I have a feeling that these songs are so tied to particular scenes that we're probably going to get this pretty quickly. So let me play a couple of them real fast. Well, if the song would play, that would be helpful. Let's try that From again. the Quiet Place. It is. Thank you. All right, let's try that again. Come on now. Hmm. All right, well, somehow it got disconnected. Let's try this again. It'll be edited out later. Yeah, we'll... I'll I'll do a little bit of editing later on. There we go. That should be better now. All right. Tell me tell me what scene this makes you think of. What scene is that? I know it's Urge Overkill, but it's it's Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is it? yeah. Is it's, it it's, it's the Mia Wallace overdose scene. Ah, uh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. I cannot. Yes. I cannot hear that. Anytime I hear that song, I'm immediately picturing the scene of her, you know, slumping over in the bathroom after she's snorted too much cocaine, and I'm like, ugh. <laughs> I mean, just visceral memories of some of these songs and. I think she snorted what she thought was cocaine. Or what she thought was right, right. Uh, I think yeah, I, I think that was what the I think that was what the problem yeah, was. Yeah, because it wasn't yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, yeah, one of my other favorite scenes, I think just because of, of one character's reaction, and this is the one I was talking about earlier. I keep hearing you're concerned about my happiness. But all that thought you're giving me is conscience again. You remember when this one is? I just know it's in the movie. I'm not good with putting it with a scene, but is it when Butch is trying to escape? It's when Butch is driving in his car and he comes up to an intersection and Marcellus Wallace holding like a box of donuts walks right in front of his yes. car, t- stops and turns and looks at him. He's like, mother. And then all of a sudden, like Butch just slams on the accelerator and hits yes. him. Yeah. But it's like, right. I, pulp, for me, again, Pulp Fiction being the one that I really connect with more than Tarantino's other movies. But I mean, it's the same thing with the music is the moment you hear, I think in, in almost any of his movies, the moment I hear these songs, I, he did whatever he needed to do to do the right thing to connect the songs with the story and the tone and the personality of the movie, he did it right. Because I cannot hear these songs anymore without immediately picturing what these scenes are in these movies. It's it's almost It's almost like if the characters in the movie put on their favorite mixtape, Right. That's the song that would be playing. Right. It's it's somehow that, and that's just what makes him a master filmmaker is that he knows those characters well enough that the music that they pick is like, oh, yeah, of course that's what they listen to. You know, like what you're talking about is when Butch is sitting in the car, that's what I would imagine was on in the radio. Right. The, the Reservoir Dogs stuck in the middle. That's mm-hmm. exactly what you would imagine – Vic Vega, wait, Vic Vega, right? Yeah. 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 Listening to, and what happens? He goes outside to get the gasoline canister, and as he walks out, the music gets softer. Yeah. Right? Well, and it's and, like, the, it's, and, it's and like the, Mr. Orange, ambient- Mr. Orange in his apartment, he's playing like a Dolly Parton song, and at first, I, I wasn't picking up that it's something being played on the radio. I just thought, oh, yeah, this is music playing during the movie. And then he goes mm-hmm. and he switches off the radio and the music stops. I'm like, oh, oh, it was something playing on the radio. Okay. Yeah. And I, I just want to say that jumping back that scene with Mr. Blonde, when he goes walking out there, I love how they dial up the ambient noise. You hear the cars driving some noise. He's just walking, gets the gasoline cans. And then as he walks back in, suddenly the music comes up. I just, and even this, the shot, I think when he walks out, I think they switch like, you know, tell me what it is, but like the camera in the, in the, the warehouse or the factory or wherever they're at, that camera's like steady, right? Like it's sitting on like a, like a dolly or something. Mm -hmm. The one outside is, is like handheld because it's a little bit shakier. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, so you really, they just switch up. He switches up how you see the scene. And like I said, the music just really is like, okay, that's what Mr. Blonde would be listening to. And that's why it fits because yeah, that, that makes sense. Knowing who that character is. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. As we learned from the soundtrack show, that is referred to as diegetic music. That's right. There it is. There you go. There's there's our 10 cent word. Thank you. Thank you, David W. Collins. Yeah. Here's the last one I'll pull because I don't think anybody would have known what this music was before this particular movie came out. That's the contest hit. Slims. Nope. From <laughs> no. Oh no, 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 no. Sorry. This is the upon a time in Hollywood, right? 
right? This this goes back to your ball gag. This is the ball <laughs> gag, yeah. Uh-huh. This is uh, bring out the gimp. Gimp sleeping. Right. Oh, that was okay, right. Guess you better go wake him up then, won't you? Play that one again. All right, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, it's once upon a time in Hollywood, but it's not. Yeah. The name of the song is Comanche. Yeah, this is this is right when Butch is walking out the door mm-hmm. trying to figure out this Dennis, this is your your favorite moral not favorite moral <laughs> dilemma, but your moral no, question. No, no, yeah. it's true. But I'm just, for some reason, it sounded like the one in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood at the end. And and by oh, the way, like, can I, I just want to explain. Yeah, I, I, go ahead, you go ahead. I'm just going to pull that one up. Okay, I just want to explain, Dennis, your favorite moral dilemma before, like, I don't know if anyone in our viewing audience knows exactly what I'm referring to. It's should Butch go back for Marcellus Wallace or not? I just, I want to be very clear with that scene. <laughs> so you know what I'm referring to, but that's always the no, thing. I know like you're, always... you're talking about. Yeah, no, it's exactly yeah. like it's the it's the Quentin Tarantino. He kind of gets the guy code there, I guess, if you want to yeah. call it the guy code. Meaning you have this beef with this other guy, but there's categories, <laughs> and this is in this category, and our beef is here. What's happening in this room right now trumps that, and you have to go back, and therefore. It, it, it's beyond the, it's beyond our normal beef. It's like, okay, we're fighting because of this and this and that. Now this stuff is at a whole nother level of weird and wrong. And you can't, you can't leave a brother. Even if you want to kill that brother, you can't leave a brother. And that was kind of like, literally like, you we're know. very far from okay. <laughs> we're pretty, we're pretty far from okay. And in yeah. a way, in a way it's an interesting writing thing too of like okay he sets this like think of that that storyline he's writing this down and literally this is a storyline he's got okay there's a guy and there's this boxer and he's gonna betray the boxer and or betray the other guy and he's gonna not take the dive and he's gonna take the money and try to get out of town and they're gonna be after each other and then they run into each other and they want to kill each other and who's gonna kill who who's gonna here's the way I solve this. I solve this for two other people. You know, another guy enters the scene and basically helps them end it for him. So he ends the beef. He never had to have either Bruce or what's the name win. Like it ends, it's over, but it's, it's mm-hmm. a truth. And the truth is, is there's this other obstacle that gets in the way and movies. They always say are about obstacles and you're, you're, you're intrigued with who's going to win. Is he going to stop him or is he going to catch him or is he going to get out of town and escape and win pretty much win or by getting away or instead there's a truth. And the truth is just introduce these other obstacles that just happen to get in the way with this freak trope kind of thing. And, um, mm-hmm. and, it, and it, there's your ending. There's your solution. So it's just kind of an interesting, many people would just think of that story playing out in a way that one wins and one loses or something along those lines where it, it gets hashed out between those two. Instead, he just said, no, I'm going to throw a wrench in here and that wrench is going to actually solve the problem, the conflict. So kind of interesting style of writing. 
me see. I think I found this shooting scene. Hold on, let me see. I want to see if the music's the same or different. I'm like, rats. Oh, sorry. I'm like, maybe it isn't. Let's see. Oops. <laughs> I don't know what you're watching. That sounds like Event Horizon. <laughs> Once upon a time on Hollywood. Oh, okay. No, it's dumber than that. Okay, sir. Oh, different song. I think it's... No, it's dumber than that. Something like rats. Shoot on text. Text. <laughs> that sounds like a little bit of a different song. Yeah, it's yeah. Okay, it was the da 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 da. For some reason, I was thinking that, but yeah. 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 When you guys have all seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I take it. I have not. Whoa. I have not. No, I, I need to see it. I haven't seen it. All right. Interesting. You have not. There, there is a. There's a scene with him with Brad Pitt and Bruce Lee. Mm-hmm. You would not like it. <laughs> I know. I've seen that. I've I've read about like. I I get what he was trying to do. I I struggled. I struggled more on his response to Bruce Lee's daughter than yeah, anything. I think that. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, yeah. I remember we discussed that. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you had seen it, but okay. I mean, it's yeah. It's like anything. It's like it's it's the Quentin Tarantino world is almost like a Tim Burton world in a way, where there's different rules. Right. It's, it's different, and and he's rewriting things, and it's pop culture, and it's rewriting yeah. history in a way, and 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 you have to either be okay with that, I guess, to a certain degree, or not. And and I get what you're saying with the with the. I remember we talked about with with the daughter, but. Yeah, he was on Rogan. He was on Rogan, and he was kind of, I don't know, he was getting a little bit mouthy about it. And I, I, if I remember right, I think I think Joe Rogan was kind of like, "All right, dude, hang on a sec." Kind of calling him, but yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Bo, have you seen it or no? Yeah, I did. I did. Uh-huh. Uh, I liked it. Yeah. Especially because if you know the history of what happens, and then to see it play out like that, I was nervous. Right. And then you like. It's a bit of a cathartic sort of, you know, yeah. I, I, it's definitely on the list. I really, really want to see it. Yeah. Cause you need to know about, you know, obviously the Manson murders and things like that as well. Mm-hmm. To fully appreciate it, I think. Got it. So I'll make sure to, it, well, I, if, happened there, and you kind of know, and, and where where it was, and it was Hollywood, and there was a house, and you know, just as long as you kind of know, I think most people kind of have an idea, but a lot of people don't know. I remember I looked into it prior to it, and that kind of helped. But it also, yeah, without getting into too much, it changes the experience a little bit when specifically more kind of what happened. Okay, and then you have Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mix a mix reality in with Quentin Tarantino, and it's a <laughs> it's it's interesting. And you could either walk away going, "Oh, that sucked. That wasn't what happened." And and then you go, "Oh, okay, it's Quentin Tarantino. Thank you for that." Right. Well, that was that was to a degree as well. What was that? Glorious Bastards has uh, you know, I, a lot of that. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. You know, and that was that was the conversation I had with my dad. He, he sat down to try and watch Inglorious Bastards and yeah. Uh, yeah. And he was just like, boy, I don't know. Like what the heck, you know? And, he, and I'm just like, well, yeah. dad, I, I just think if you're going to try to 
do that, you kind of got to know what Quentin Tarantino is. Not a historical movie. It's a Quentin Tarantino film. Right. 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 You know, and, that's and you, really it. It's just not a history. You, you got to drop that. It's a, it's a whole different world. Mm-hmm. It's his rules. All right. We have anything else we want to say about this one before we get into our three questions? So I'm afraid to admit this, but I didn't process and I don't know why, because I don't think anyone would have ruined this movie for me. I think I've just seen it so many times. I repressed a memory that Mr. Orange, it was like a surprise to the audience that he had, that he was the guy, right? Like I didn't even, I didn't even process that till I was like reading up on the, I was reading through an article after this viewing of the movie. And I think it's because I've just seen it so many times. I thought the whole backstory with Mr. Orange working with the, you know, the, the other, his handler and all Mm -hmm. that. I thought that came earlier in the movie. I didn't process it until, yeah, I, that was like, oh, really? We didn't know that he was the guy that was the rat? Oh, that's crazy. I think it's Tim Roth's character and a combination of the actor himself and his character, you didn't want to believe it either. I felt like if anybody in the whole movie, he's you have the kind of the mo- well. I don't know, man, Mister Pink. You have some. I do have some. I did have some. I don't know. Well, see, that's uh, the thing that I, I. None of these people are really characters that you would should have yes tremendous sympathy for. But if there was anybody who doesn't, like you, definitely don't have any for Michael Madsen's character. You don't have Chris Penn's. No, it's like. You go through each of them. Harvey Keitel, you, you kind of do, because he wants to believe. They only, Harvey Keitel and Tim Roth seem like, out of all these guys, they seem like, if you had to pick, these would be the two guys you'd, you'd be like, okay, I'm cool with these guys. Yeah. You don't like, really. But, like, and I think you want that to be true. Like, the heartbreak on Harvey Keitel's face almost is, mm-hmm. is yeah. uh, he's defending him, and it, there's a certain sadness to, like, Man, you know, yeah. I wanted to believe you, you know, like he seriously, it's like you, you feel hurt with him. Right. And then you feel still like Tim Roth, that he's, he's the police. So he's, he's the good guy. Like you want him to live and you know, he's dying. I mean, those are the only two you really feel any sort of sympathy. Like you do feel some for Mr. White, but the rest of them. I, 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 yeah, I did feel that for Mr. White, but then that's the kind of thing about this movie. There's no character. What what do they say? Character development, but there's character revealing. It's like, dude, he's nothing but a thug. Now he's a little bit older. He's a little bit more wise in terms of what they're trying to do, but he's still a thug. Like he has no problems shooting his way out of a place. Then I compare it to a movie like heat and it's like, okay, do I, sympathize with any of those characters the ones that are the bad guys it's just an interesting yeah it's an well, interesting and how they character play. study it is but and, and i think it's like you said you don't get a whole lot of these people so you only have to go by what they give you right and and i think there's a very similar you refer to that scene with uh, where there's that code among guys that quentin tarantino sort of alludes to in films and with the, with the, with the scene where he goes back obviously for, for Pulp Fiction. But with this, I think Michael Madsen, it's, 
his character. And after that happens, Mr. After Mr. After you see Mr. Blonde, it's like the other guys start to look good. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yeah, because he's nuts. nuts. That you're like, these guys are at least normal guys. They're normal criminals, you know? Right. Talked about this with the Godfather. They seem like they start to become people, you know, where Chris Penn, you could see kind of like spoiled son. Not spoiled, just kind of spoiled sort of like knowing it. Mr. Mr. Pink, Bashemi's a little bit more sarcastic with everything. So you're left with the guy that feels good and you don't know why. So you don't want to be the... You don't want to, it's weird with Mr. With Mr. Orange, you don't want him to be the, the guy who, you know, was, 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 was the, the, the informant, whatever, who basically made the deal go bad. But at the same time, you're getting the sense that he's a good guy and you don't want him to die. So mm-hmm. it's weird. So it, it should almost hit you as obvious that he's one of the police, but see, you don't know, you don't even, I don't even think you think in the equation that he's a police officer exactly. I mean, I'm trying to think if I did, I just thought one of them was a rat, an informant versus being actual police. But in this case, he's actually police. So you get the underlying sense of goodness of him maybe being the police officer, but at the same time, you don't want him to be the guy that is this, the one who, guy. You know, yeah, it's a weird contrast of, yeah, I remember I was feeling it like, I didn't have it quite figured out that, that he was necessarily it, but I want him to be good. And I don't know if good meant be the informant or yeah. – because then it's kind of like it's the bad thing because he basically made all everything go bad mm-hmm. by being the informant. But at the same time, they're, they're committing crimes. So it's, it's, a, it's an interesting – it is interesting. Thinking back to what I, what I had seen when I had originally saw that, I was – Complex. It was, I was. I, I wanted two people to survive, and it was Mr. Orange and Mr. White. Mm-hmm. That's who I wanted to survive. I didn't want them to die. Yeah. They claim. I don't know exactly why, but I'm like trying to like make sense of it now. Like even just thinking back, why did I? Is it because they weren't Mr. Blonde? They weren't at that level. So even though they're still criminals, one of them was. We still have a certain sympathy for him, but you. But definitely not Mr. Blonde. They say that Mr. Pink was the only guy that survived. I think so. They say if you turn up, you can hear the conversation like outside while Mr. White is crawling over Mr. Orange. And if you turn up and listen to that, I haven't done it myself, but they, they say you can hear Mr. Pink, you know, you shot me. I, I surrender or something like that. You shot me. You shot me in the arm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm very badly burned, but I'm still quite alive. Yeah. And I yeah. guess one other trivia thing I read is that Michael Madsen did not enjoy the torture scene. Like, I guess they. Yeah, it sounds like he's not a fan. No, I, I think yeah. he's I think he's very anti-violence, which is kind of funny because he's in some violent movies. Mm-hmm. Well, and then another thing, though, it's we talked about the music being forever connected to something so sadistically evil. So is he. Not typecast, but like, I don't know if he's necessarily typecast. He's has the ability to play other things. But when I see him, I think of that scene. Mm, and he's true. See him, and there's going to be a thought of, uh, no, oh, it's the dude from, it's the guy from Reservoir Dogs who cut the guy's ear off. He's going to be ever for known for that scene. So that's, I could see why he would have been reluctant. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is that is kind of the struggle of. I think actors, writers, producers, directors, all those people is like you get connected with something that you might now want to be connected. Yeah. 
for the rest of your career. Ask Alec Innes about Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah. yeah. Well, Harrison Ford. Yeah. You know, some people never get out of that. And uh, yeah. Are you kidding me? I still have kids coming up asking to see the band director. And I'm like, come on, guys, come on. I try, I try, I try to play it cool, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah. All right. Well, real quick, before we get into three questions, I, I didn't want to miss pointing some of these things out. I talked earlier about some connections between this movie and Pulp Fictions or some potential connections. I don't think some of these connections work out unless you assume that more people survived this movie than actually did. Some people have tried to make the connection that in Pulp Fiction, the wolf is actually Mr. White who survived just because he's played by Harvey Keitel. Doesn't quite match up because we find out that, I mean, his name was Larry in this one, and his name is Winston Wolf. That happens to be his last name, not just a nickname in Pulp Fiction. But some people have tried to make the connection because when the wolf makes a phone call, he's on the call, and he ends the phone call by saying, you're a good man, Joe. Thanks a bunch. So people try to make the connection that the Joe that they were talking about in this one, who also supposedly died, is the same Joe from there. In one of the radio ads that if you're listening to the radio that they keep playing in this one, there is a radio ad for Jackrabbit Slims, home of the $5 milkshake. And then there is also, let's see, I had it in my notes here. Yes, the uh, when Mr. Blonde shows up and he is sipping on his drink, anybody happen to catch the the cup, where the cup is from that he's slipping, uh, uh, can't even talk, sipping on his drink where the cup is from? Mm. Big Kahuna Burger, right? It, Kahuna Burger. It is a, big... a tasty burger. Mm-hmm. This is a tasty burger. It is a Big Kahuna Burger cup. No. Oh. And then finally, Vic Vega, and this has been confirmed. Quentin, Car- Quentin Tarantino said this is true. Vic Vega, Mr. Blonde, is actually supposed to be Vincent Vega's brother, and that at one point in time he had an idea for a movie in which that would have taken place obviously before this one that he had an idea for a movie where Vince and Vic would show up and, like, get into hijinks together. Hmm. So. Interesting. So those are the uh, those are the potential Pulp Fiction connections. One of the other things I noticed is, and I don't, it may just be reusing of names and things like that, but if you want to make some connections or assumptions, Mr. White whose name is Larry, and I guess technically his full name is Larry Dimmick. When you get to Pulp Fiction, Quentin Tarantino's character Jimmy is supposedly named Jimmy Dimmick. So it's the exact same last name as Mr. White from Reservoir Dogs. Hmm. So again, I think Tarantino just likes to kind of play around with names and stuff like that. So I don't think these are actual relatives or connections other than the Vincent and and Vic Vega one, which he has said. Maybe he's a psycho. A psycho? No psychos. They're vampires. All right. It's time for three questions. He asks each traveler five questions. Three questions. Three questions. It's impossible to answer. Impossible because you don't know the answer. Nobody could answer that question. I want to ask you a bunch of questions. I want to have them answered immediately. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room 
is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. All right, question number one. Because we got quite a bit of K-Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s, where the 70s still survive, my first question for you is, what is your one single favorite song from the 1970s? Well, that is one of the harder questions you've ever asked us. I know. And, mm-hmm. and my family was unhappy with me for asking them earlier at dinner as well. Yeah, this is tough, but I'm going to go just top of my head, American Pie. There you go. Yeah, I've got to, I've got to say kind of recency bias kind of thing with it because, boy, it could switch. But uh, I'm going to say uh, The Doors, uh, Riders on the Storm. Mm, very nice. Nice. And I think I, I think I, I'm, I'm announcing to the to our podcast viewing audience that when we did the Doors, I said, "Man, I'm going to make it my mission in life to become a fan of this band and listen to them more." And I can say that, however many months later, I have been exhaustively listening to their albums, and well, not exhaustively because I haven't gotten tired of them yet. And I am, I have definitely become a fan. Man, they are a fantastic band. So. Well, if you're if you're listening exhaustively, then that's not that you're tired; it's you've done it thoroughly. Okay, then so I will I will I will go ahead and and say yes to that. But okay. for the for the '70s songs, I would have to say "Riders on the Storm." Okay, Dennis, what about you? Because of the Peter Gabriel thing, it's always going to be Salisbury Hill, 1970s. Nice. Yeah, it's not, most people don't. I don't know if they don't think of it as a 1970s song, but. No, it's funny. I wouldn't have if I didn't look. Well, it's 1977 was his first release after *Even Genesis*. Because it it definitely has an 80s yep. feel to it. That's cool. Different oh. to it, to all that stuff. But yeah, it's. And when I looked at, it, I was like, "Oh, easy." I think Gabriel was either 77 or 79. I'm like, "Yeah, it was 77. It's good." Nice. So I'm gonna go with that one. Yeah. For me, again, <laughs> kind of like Pat, I might have to go with some stuff that. Is, is more I've listened to it recently so that's why it's in my brain I think that uh, I think for me I'm going to have to do Starman by David Bowie I was struggling between that one and or Rosalinda's Eyes by Billy Joel so I think I'm going to go Starman nice alright now I will yeah. say that I did have a couple runner. I mean, should I have runners up or not? Should I pull a yeah, you, you know, because because that one's more of a. I'm a Peter Gabriel fan, so it's going to go to that. I don't think most people think of it like you said, like Bo didn't think of it as '70s. Which, yeah, it's like I had to confirm it too because I'm like, that was late. I think it was late '70s. I would probably go with, uh, I think, "Silly Love Songs" by Paul McCartney was well played. Mm-hmm. I think the "Let It Be" album, so probably, yeah. Would be another one. Let it be was on my list as I was I looking think, at him. I think I gotta go with Stairway to Heaven as well. Ah, okay. How about Plenty December 1963, Frankie Valley? 19 what? December 1963. Okay. Because that came out in 75. Ah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's a good, yeah, that is definitely. Heard that the other night, which is what Lennon made me think Collins. of it. London Calling's also another. Yeah. Yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lean on me. Some meatloaf. Paradise, I think, by the dashboard. Yep. Oh, there you go. Freebird. American Woman. <laughs> Freebird. I mean, 
it's a Marvin Gaye. I think it's seven. I mean, I'm just throwing mm-hmm. out things from the seventies, but like what's going on. Yeah, and you say my favorite. Yeah. Yep. And one of my favorite, favorite songs would be Peter Gabriel, but still it used to be played on the commercials all the time. Three dog night, joy to the world. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was just going to say that one. Cause we heard it Saturday night. We went to a festival and there were fireworks and they played that with oh, the fireworks. Nice. It yeah. was awesome. Yeah. I would think, uh, uh, maybe some ABBA, Dancing Queen. Sure. Andy, for sure. Gotta go Bee Gees. One we haven't even mentioned Hooked on a Feeling from the movie, but. Yeah. Al Green. Well, you got Little Let's Stay Together. Yeah. Two well, you just... can be as bad as one. It's the loneliest number since. The... Oh, sorry. I, got, I mean, you got, you you got me stuck on three dogs right now. Uncle so. Bridge over Troubled Waters. Like, yeah. There's. There's so much great music, like just really fantastic music. I mean, and I'm not educated in it, but all the prog rock going on and like, uh, uh, yes. What was it? Rick Wakeman, Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Silly love songs for me with the, with Paul McCartney, me and Scott Huff, my best friend from, from K through eight. We were allowed by, I want to say it was Mrs. Kelleher. My, I want to say third or fourth grade teacher. We had the, the the Muppet puppets. We had Animal. We had Grover, and we were allowed during school. We had somehow practiced this. We did a, a little puppet video, Muppet video, to "Silly Love Songs" by Peter Gabriel. And you got to picture us behind the teacher's desk with the puppets up over the desk. We're behind it, and we're both we're singing "Silly Love Songs" by. It. And they start dancing, and it was, it was probably the most bizarre thing. I wish that would have been recorded, but. That's why I think silly love songs because that was like got to do that and that was cool. Catholic school let me do that, man. Teacher's like, yeah, sure, go for it. So we got to go and play it over a little 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 tape player, and my kids loved it. I think <laughs> nobody threw stuff at us, but we had the animal put the actual animal Muppet puppets, which was awesome. I wonder where that thing is, man. I wonder if we still even have it anywhere. Oh man, Paranoid, Black Sabbath. Yeah. Born to Run, Springsteen. Born to Run. Little Rod Stewart. All right. I'm going to question two. Otherwise, we'll be here all night. (laughs) Wait, I was just going to get into Van Halen's early stuff. I know. I know. We'll we'll save that for next time. Oh, jeez. Question two What's your philosophy on tipping? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Do you have a particular tra- do you have a particular amount that you normally try to tip? Hmm. I'm almost always twenty percent at the minimum, regardless of breakfast, lunch, dinner. Yeah, that's yep, pretty much yep, where I'm yep. at. I try it's to a little go, harder when you get in your haircut. I try to stuff go stuff like that. But. Yeah, yeah. Certain things like that, but when I think tipping, yeah, I'm like it's I usually will look it up, find out what the normal is, and go above it a little bit. If I, that's, if I was, I, mean, I don't get how celebrities, yeah, and people who are millionaires don't just tip like a crazy person all the time. I'd be, I maybe, maybe that's why they, I don't know, maybe that's why they hold out of the money. I don't know, but I would be, any I, if I get a stipend for doing a sport, like cross-country stipend comes in pat, whoever's, mm-hmm. whoever's wait, waitress in my table, man, is, is a lucky person. <laughs> yeah, I always try to be still paycheck to paycheck, but then you get that extra two or three grand in the bank and you feel like 
Ralph Cramden, man. Like, yeah, <laughs> there's more where that came from. And you just kind of throw it out there. And you're like, you're just going to, and it's not an ego thing of the money. It's just, I can, like, I'd love to, you know, love to be Santa Claus and just give money out. But yeah, so, you know what? I, it, as it, much it, as I can, because I know those jobs are not necessarily easy when they put up with a lot of crap from people. And, and I look at it two ways. I know some people are like, Hey, if the service is bad, I'm not tipping. I often think it, I try to be empathetical and say, maybe this person's had some really crappy customers have gotten no tips and is just having a bad day. So maybe this tip might turn that day around. Is, so is my service always a hundred percent every day? No, uh, <laughs> no. Yeah. You know what? And honestly, like the whole thing, I try to figure out too, why is the service bad? You know, is the service bad? Well, Dennis, maybe you can tell your story about being in wherever the heck Arizona waiting for your cart. I'll let you tell that story and that waitress and all that. Like maybe it was that situation or is it like they've got like 30 tables and they're understaffed. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to hold them accountable. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. and so I always try to tip like exactly like you said, like at least 20%, but then I round up by like dollars. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Cause it's like, okay, I don't go out. I mean, I'm not judging. I'm just observing. I don't drink Starbucks, so I don't like multiple times a week go out and dump 12 bucks on a cup of coffee. So I figure if a, the few times that I go out to eat, I dump a, like a couple, two, three, four, five more dollars. You know what? I, I, I think, yeah, yeah, people. So I always try to tip that. And I also tip with carry out. You know what I'm saying? Like if I'm picking food up, I also throw a yeah. tip. Yes. Um, I always say we are, my dad used to always do that. And I think my dad laid that like thing down for me that he tip even for carry out. And, and I still say the same line he would say, which is just typically, here's for whoever prepared it. Mm-hmm. Whoever put mm-hmm. the bag, whoever did the whole thing, like here you go, here's a tip for whoever prepared it. Because it's often somebody yeah. back there who's putting it all together and they drop it off yeah. and it's there. And I'm just always like, here, whoever put it together, here you go. So, yeah. And my dad was always a pretty good tipper too. So I think yeah. I had a role model. And, you know, and like I said, I... Somebody's having, somebody would have to be downright mean to me for me to be like, I'm not tipping. I don't, I don't think of it as, Hey, they only filled my glass up three times. Yeah. Or two times. I'll even help people out at the beginning and say, I'm just telling you, I'm going to drink a lot of water today. Can I mm-hmm. get three glasses with no ice, just water. And they'll, and then that way you ain't got to worry about coming back and forth. Cause I know you're busy and they'll do it mm-hmm. and it's great. And it works. So I don't know. I just, the way I think I was raised and yeah, it's, it's a big dating criteria too. It always has been like when I would date, I'd always like to see what, what, the, what the, how the date treated the waitress. They always say, mm. yeah, so I think. Have you, but, have you ever, have you ever been out with like other folks and you see the tip that they're throwing down and you're just like, Forget oh, that, I, man. They leave. Yeah. They leave, and then I, I'm the last yep. one to walk away from the table, and I just hurry up and yep. down. Yep. put that, put that down, put that yeah. down. And like, there's times, like, well, I'll tell the story after the, uh, so it's so it's not recorded down because it's it's it, no no one here or any of that kind of stuff. But I mean, I'm just like, yeah, there's been a couple times where I've done that. Like, dude, you can't do that, and it gets into a thing. I'm just like, okay, fine, you're right. They leave and I go back and I like slap a 20 down or something. You're talking about if they're discussing it. Yeah. And exactly. That's when you do that. So like initially I'll try to be like, Hey, plead on the case of the, t- of the waitress or the waiter. Yeah. And then if people are like, no, no, no. And they're just kind of like, man, nah, nah, I'm not going to do that. Heck no. And they're not going to be willing because they're part of the tip as well with their money. So I'm like, okay, you're pretty set on this. And then like you said, you just agree. 
and mm-hmm. you, know, you can tip that 10% and make your point. But when, mm-hmm. <laughs> when we all walk away from this table, I'm throwing another yeah. down for another 10 or another five. Uh, I'm, I'm, I've been only drinking waters in order to sandwich, but we split the check evenly and I just covered your like 16 cocktails. So why don't you just, yeah, all that kind of stuff. There was, there was one time, there was one time we went out after school to one of the places up in Libertyville and it it was either Mickey Finn's or O'Toole's, one of those two. And like, I was just like, I totally miscalculated and I walked out and I'm like, Oh no. And I got in my car and I looked and I'm like, Oh no. So I actually drove back the next day and I'm like, Hey, can you guys help me out? And their eyes got big. They're like, was there a problem? I'm like, no, I I had it in a little envelope and I'm like, I think the server's name was, I totally under tipped. Can you please, please, please make sure that gets to this person? Cause I like just did the math wrong. I know big surprise, but it's just like, I drove. <laughs> I back understood the next there would be no math. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I just, I drove back the next day and said, I've got to make this right because. Yeah. I, yeah. I have a relative that will not tip at all anywhere for anything. And they, it's an older relative. And this relative says that the reason they do not tip is because they worked a job their entire life and no one ever tipped them. And I was like, cause you don't tip people at a shoe store. Yeah. It's, it's, that's <laughs> yeah. why you did not get tips. But There's to, a married with children joke in there somewhere. I'm well, just trying to let it slide. Right. Yeah. But to their but they are so adamant about it that there had been times where they said, no, 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 I'm not leaving a tip where then I would go to start and leave a bigger tip to make up for the fact that they weren't yeah. tipping. And they got mad yeah. at me for leaving a bigger yeah. tip for the person. I said, uh, this is my choice on how much I want to leave. Well, that's too much. Don't leave that. Yeah. I said, no, no, no. I can leave however much I want to leave. I know. I and people say and I'm leaving and I'm leaving enough to make up for your poor decision. Well, no, yeah. no, no, don't do that. I'll pick it up off the table. I said, you will not pick it up off the table. Otherwise, oh, yeah. <laughs> otherwise, I will go and I will pay with it on my credit card, and you can't do anything about that. Yeah. No. Yeah, that whole thing, it's it's like that. I understand if you think it doesn't make much sense, and why do we tip over here but not over here, and why do we tip this and not the McDonald's, like yeah. all of the Mr. Pink arguments. Yeah, yeah those, are, those are things that people will have, but actually study it. Look at the economics behind it, mm-hmm. and it's not – do they all get paid minimum wage? Because sometimes they don't. They do not. <laughs> they do, I actually have. They do not. They do not get paid. That's what I thought. They I have the I have the U.S. Department of Labor website yeah. open. I, I wanted to go look yeah. this up because I was they curious. They don't. They rely, they rely on tips. I read something yeah. somewhere that the yeah. minimum cash wage that like there's a whole system for making up the difference between actual minimum wage and minimum wage for minimum cash wage for tipped workers. And this amount has not changed since before 1990. And the minimum Mm -hmm. cash wage federally is $2 and 13 cents. Now in, in other States, it's much higher. Like in California, it's $14 in Guam, it's eight seventy five. In mm-hmm. Minnesota, it's ten thirty three for large employers and eight forty two for small employers. So, depending on your state, it might be very, very different. But the federal and some states, looking at you, Arkansas, some states are still pretty much close to that, like two dollars and whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, for a for a worker, Delaware is like two twenty three. I mean, it's it's crazy how low some of yeah. these are. And I look at that and I go, that that's why. 
we tip friends. Yeah. Because because that's they're that's, they're not paid how... they're not paid minimum wage. And, and I totally I totally get you want to helicopter in and suddenly change it because it just doesn't make sense to you. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Like whoever these people are, but it's like no, you got to understand what world you're walking into. Right. You can't just go in and change it. Now, if you want to change it, that's fine. Then you start a restaurant and, and there's places that have done this that have said, Hey, we're going to switch things around and we're going to, and guess what? Yeah. Food's going to be a little bit more expensive, but we're not tipping anymore. Yeah. Or all the tips go into a hopper and we split them evenly among the, the bus staff, the cook staff, the, and all that kind of thing. Yeah. But it's just like, yeah, I mean, it's, I, yeah, and I and I think I have this weird thought too that just it's just the the fact that I I I always feel like we are blessed to be living in a time and in a country mm-hmm. and be in a position that we actually sit down and someone else cooks and brings us food. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've never that's never been lost on me. Right. Yeah. The fact that I'm not making it, I'm not bringing it to me. I'm literally getting to just walk in like a king. Right. And some. Mm-hmm. And granted, I'm paying for the food, but just the act of there's a server, there's almost like this. It used to be peasants, and it's like somebody like, and I want to make sure that I, that that I understand that that is fully appreciated. So that's kind of I think what my thinking always is too. But no matter what, somebody's bringing me food and putting it at my table. We live in a country, and we're in a time period and a situation where we are blessed. You go to another country, and somebody's walking a half a mile and carrying their water on their head. Mm-hmm. to bring it back to their family for the week you know and it's like we're just yeah. blessed, i think so so for me i have no problem with the tipping and, and and one little side thing there's two ways to get around i know john it's not like you get they they stop you because people have done that before and i figured out there's different ways of doing it and one is the timing you try to go ahead and you you wait till you're the last person mm-hmm. and they're kind of all walking out and you're the last person it's pretty easy to stop back and throw that on there without them seeing it oh, i've done that before the other way the other but there are some people will catch on to that and especially after this podcast probably but, uh, but assuming they listen I'm that again, that yeah. that relative that relative is over 90 years old they're not listening to this podcast and, and the other way, <laughs> my way, phone talks to me and it sounds like John. <laughs> the other way is I make up the excuse that I like to hand the tip to them mm-hmm. and say thank you and bye before I leave. I don't leave it on the table because it prevents somebody from walking by and grabbing it who's not working there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I use those two excuses, even though the odds of that are happening. I mean, I'm sure that can happen, but very rarely. So I usually will actually like make a point to go up and. Uh, and, and hand it to him that way when I take everyone else's tip, which might be lower, I can easily have mine already in my hand ready to go and they're not counting it. And, and I could just hand it to them and it's got 10 more than, or yeah. five more, whatever than, than the group had given. Yeah. So that's the other way of solving that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. All right. Question number three, if you were a cop, would you be willing to work undercover? I hang on, hang on, hang on one sec. Yeah, go for it. Number one, how the heck did we not talk about Van Halen one and Van Halen two for question number one? I just looked at the track listing and I'm like, oh my god, there's like, okay, like, just I'm that's all I'm going to say, listening audience. Van Halen seventy eight and seventy nine, I think Van Halen and Van Halen two, and you look at like the track listing or just the singles. Yeah, that's amazing. Okay, so that's thing. Question number two, I would be interested to hear what Padraig has to say because i know like in other countries tipping culture and john i know your experience in england when that was so hard when we were in ireland and we toured around and all the books said yeah you don't tip like at the most you might buy the bartender like buy around for him or her 
but like I like that's that's hard to flip the script and then go to where there's like another because you like I feel awful like are you sure I'm not supposed to get no don't put and it's just like I feel like I'm committing a crime by not, but you know what I'm saying? So that was the only other thing I was going to say with question number two Yeah, is it's hard. It's hard to break that. Cause you just feel, <laughs> I think we, I think we stayed in a guest house and I think we, we gave a tip and I'm just like, like they, they didn't want it. But I'm like, we got to leave a tip. We got to leave. And then I, I think we got like, they contacted us like a week later and said, you left some money here. You overpaid. Here's your change. And I'm like, Oh, well, <laughs> great but anyways that was my only thing i'm sorry and all, all i remember from being in england is that it, i and i think i i might have seen this when i was looking up tipping stuff earlier today is that they don't have like the same way we lower people's wages if they get tips so that it kind of like compensates for reaching the minimum wage they don't do that as far as i can tell they don't do that in england like there is okay. everybody in england is paid whatever the national minimum wage is that's what you're paid there's no weird like mm-hmm. tipping wage or whatever. From what I recall, it was more like if you went to a fancy restaurant, like they might okay. they might build in a gratuity or you might be expected to tip. I don't remember of all the time, and, and Ireland may be a little bit different. I, of all the times, and it may not, of all the times we ever went to a pub or we, we ever went to just like a mom and pop kind of a place, we my dad would always do it. He would always leave a tip, but it was always kind of like a, they were surprised that a tip was left, mm-hmm. um, you know, that it wasn't necessary. It wasn't even expected necessarily, but, you know, probably being the American, he, he was going to tip anyway, because that's just what we were used to doing. So mm-hmm. I remember we did get, we did get some folks that were like, what's this? Yeah. It, it, it's a tip. Oh yeah. Okay. So why are you paying? Why are you paying? This is yeah. what, this is what we charged you. Why are you leaving more? I'm like, well, I don't know. This yeah. is what we do. But, yeah. All right, so question well, number three. Would you be willing to work undercover if you were a cop? I want to say yes, that I'd have the balls to do it. I just don't know if I'm a good enough liar. Yeah. I want to say no, because my concern would be, especially having a family, you know, it might be a little bit different if you were just like, if you were already a police officer and you already worked a job where your life was on the line and you, you put it on the line to protect people and whatnot, that would be a little bit different. And I feel like I might be a decent enough actor to be able to do it. But if I had a family, I don't think I would do it because then I, I feel like I'd always be looking over my shoulder be like, who else am I putting in danger by having gone undercover? And now I'm no longer undercover because there hopefully is an end point where you're no longer undercover, I'd either have to live in a very different place than where I was undercover or no. Yeah. As somebody who wanted to be a police officer, my answer would be no. I'd like to like, kind of like both. I'd like to be able to say I could do that, but man, that's the reasons you gave the family. I think just the fact that when you're undercover, the suspense of, of, of just in the fear of like, I know I'm undercover. Mm-hmm. What if they know I'm undercover and they're playing along and they're going to, in the next minute I'm going to have a bullet. Like, do we know yeah. that they know that they know do they know that exactly, right. you know? And it's like, you know, that I know, you know that you, that I know, that you right. know, yeah. 
but not even like after the job is over because it comes to an end and then you have the fear of looking over your shoulder like somebody new. right somebody sees you someday yeah. in your uniform yeah. or whatever yeah. the heck yeah exactly i'm talking about even just in the operation the the stress of that and the fact that you have to probably go along and do some really bad things to be accepted mm-hmm into that undercover operation that you would not normally be willing to do, whether it's beating the heck out of somebody, you know, putting ketchup on a hot dog. Drugs. Well, look at what was the movie with, um, where they were with undercover police. It was with undercover brother departed. No departed. Well, the departed is a good one though. But yeah, uh, after, after uh, this question, I'm going to watch departed. I'm going to when we're signed oh, off the podcast, the one with Don Brasco, drugs. it was the one with the drugs and they get caught up. Oh, Rush. Rush, rush, yes. Oh, gosh, yeah. yeah. Like, he had to do Ooh. that to kind of sell, the, sell the, 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 the bit, but then you get hooked on it, and now you're part of it. That's just the – that's a tough – that's probably the toughest police job ever, I think. That's the scariest one. I mean, they're all scary, but, like, at least you're a police officer, and you feel at least there used to be a little bit of a, a sense that the – the badge and the uniform somewhat protected you, you know, because the worst thing you could do is kill a cop, and and then after you're looking at chart, so there was a little bit of like bad, bad. Now, not so much in the past. Now, you some, someone would become a target, but in the but in the past, that that gave you a little bit of a cloak of of some some protection. Where undercover, you're giving it all up, and somebody'd be like, "Hey, I shot him because I thought he was like." I know he's a cop, <laughs> you know, and that's some more bi- viable excuse, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Pat, did you give your answer? Yeah, I, I, I couldn't no. do the undercover thing. I, that, that uh, even, even just shows where someone like mistaken identity type show, like I, th- that stuff drives me nuts. Like I just get frustrated. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, yeah. It just like on a core level. So to have to do something like that, yeah, I I wouldn't, you know, couldn't do it. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. Twenty one Jump Street hit. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't be any. I wouldn't be any good at that stuff. If it was a thing of like going undercover, like what some of those movies where they go undercover in like a high school because the cop looks really young or something, and that's when they go undercover, like. I don't think I could pull off looking like a high schooler, but yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't if it was something it. where it wasn't like a, I don't know what undercover thing you'd have that wouldn't be dangerous, but like I don't know. But yeah, it would it would be the Und- whole family thing. I would just be concerned that not even necessarily for myself to a degree myself, but mm-hmm. uh, I, if it was kindergarten cop, there you go. If I was a kindergarten teacher and that's how I was going undercover, maybe that, but mm-hmm. yeah. Or a miscongeniality kind of a thing, maybe that. What was the Tommy yeah. Lee Jones one where it was in Texas, and it was like a cheerleading thing? It was a man of the house. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. White chicks. I don't think that would work. What was the one with Stephen Cryer? Was it Cryer? John Cryer. Yeah, John Cryer. Which in school. Anyway, Pat, I thought you'd say yes because of the Fast and Furious movies. Yeah, so Fast and the Furious was cool, but you see, there was that in that other movie that you that you hate, Point Break. God, I hate that one. In Utah. <laughs> Give me two. Utah. Give me two. Utah. I, G- I, Give me a break. No, I like th- those movies are good, but like they, uh, 
you know, well, I don't want to give away any plot points with, with, with those in the spoilers, but you know, like it's, it's, it's never like a straight line. You know what I'm saying? I can't believe you brought up Point Break. <sighs> Point Break's a great movie. I'll tell you what else is great movies. Fast and the Furious. I think Fast great and the Furious at, Nine great, is coming out. Great at getting us into trouble. <laughs> movie was Hiding Out, Hiding Out with John Cryer, 1987. He went back to school. Huh. Doc broke around the run from the mob, decides to hide out from them by rolling as a student in high school. So I guess he's not a police officer, there is he? Yeah, uh, that That's, must that must have been his palate. <laughs> that must have been his palate cleanser after being in Superman Four. Yeah, it's the same year. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you, everybody. 30podcast.com is where you can find our website, at 30podcast on all the different social media stuff. Our episode's coming up for the rest of this month. Patreon is the Razzies of 1992. Our Patreon Mm -hmm. short episodes, one's already out, Obi-Wan Kenobi, review of the six episodes of that one. Thor Love and Thunder is coming out. And... Let's see. Then we've got next week. Our regular episode is going to be the Mighty Ducks, and then Beef Oven will be after that. Then we are looking at we're already looking ahead into August. This is going to go pretty quickly, so we'll be in August pretty soon. Patreon for August will be best motorcycle movies. Not sure what the other Patreon short will be just yet, but one of them will be on Creep Show from 1982. And then our episodes are Sneakers, Glen Gary, Glen Ross. Captain Ron, Wayne's World, and White Men Can't Jump. So that's what we got coming up over the next month and a half or so. Go ahead and find those movies. Watch them ahead of time if you want to keep up with us. And I will, a lot of times, I will like tweet out and put up stuff if you want to look for these movies on Amazon. I'll, I'll tweet out links so you can grab them from there. If you use those links, that also helps to support the show as well. So, gentlemen, as always, I love talking movies with you. It's been fun. Yep. Thanks, John. To Thanks, guys. Yeah. Good to see you guys. Be excellent to each other. Go watch some good movies. And if, God, I got to tell you guys right now, if you shoot me in a dream, you better wake up and apologize. I was going to say, you didn't have the quotes this one. That was my favorite. I was waiting for that one. I feel like half the quotes we can't do because they're not family friendly. Well, that one you can if you shoot me in a dream. Yeah, shoot me in a dream. I've used that numerous. That's one of the ones I use. You going to bark all day, little doggy? Or you going to bite? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, go watch some movies all day, little doggies, and we'll see you back here next time.